heads and pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to be here at this church among our friends and family, the people you've given us to love and be loved by. Lord, you know how each and every one of us entered the room this morning. You know who is excited about what's on the horizon, who is frightened. Lord, you know who has just received great news, a new baby, uh, entrance into school. But Lord, you also know who walked in this morning with a heavy heart, who got bad news, who discovered something that they didn't want to find out. Lord, you know each and every one of us, and you know all of the things that could distract us from hearing your word, from allowing ourselves to be present with you. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would just allow us for this next 30 minutes just to, to lay all of that at your feet. We know that you care about it more than we do, Lord, but we pray that you would allow us for this next 30 minutes to just set it down, to be able to let go of the things that would distract us from hearing you, the things that, were, that, that are so exciting that they make us forget we need you, the things that are so challenging that they make us forget that you love us. Lord, help us to lay it down at your feet so that we might better lean in and listen and hear what you have to say to us this morning. So Lord, we are so grateful for your provision, the way that you continually are with us and offer us your grace, your forgiveness, and your love. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen. You may be seated. So People love to own things. I love to own things. I know this because my husband and I have this recurring fight about who owns the tub of Cool Whip in our freezer. Uh, my, when Rob and I first got married, he, he, we went grocery shopping for the first time together, and he bought a tub of Cool Whip um, and put it in the freezer and proceeded to not touch it for about three weeks. And so I, over the period of that three weeks, ate some of the Cool Whip naturally, you know, a little spoonful here, a little spoonful there, right out of the tub, um, until there was maybe about a quarter of the tub left at which point my husband, who, again, I remind you, has not touched the Cool Whip for three solid weeks, opens up the tub of Cool Whip and, and yells from the kitchen, you ate all my Cool Whip, his Cool Whip, his Cool Whip. Now, I assumed, erroneously I've thus discovered, <laughs> um, I assumed that we co-owned said Cool Whip because both of our salaries, you know, pay for the groceries, but alas, I was terribly mistaken. And I argued my point, you know, how was I supposed to know not to eat it? It's been there for three weeks. You haven't opened it. It's just sitting there, not doing its job, adding coolness or whippedness to any foods. It's just sitting there. I helped the Cool Whip achieve its potential, but he was adamant. He said no, I unwavering in his claim to ownership. And so now I know it's, it's whoever goes grocery shopping. That's who owns the Cool Whip. So now we just buy two tubs and we both on the Cool Whip. Unfortunately, sometimes I eat mine too fast and he eats his too slow, and that's why it's a recurring fight. So it's a good thing that my husband loves me and like supports what I do because I really just invite you guys right on into the marriage just every time that I'm up here. We all love to own things. We love to own things even when we're not using them. We love to own things because we like to reserve the right to use them or to not use them whenever we see fit. We want to be able to choose to share them or not um, if, if we don't want to. This morning, we're going to be talking about stewardship. And I think this can be a tough conversation for Christians because in accordance with our faith, we believe that God is the author and the owner of all things, which means that we don't actually own our own stuff, which then also means that how we, how we manage those things, what we do with that stuff, must be informed not simply by our desires, but by the desires of God. And, and, and Christian or not, human beings find this difficult because we want to we wanna be the owner. We want to be the sole proprietor of the Cool Whip. We'd rather not have to consult anybody else when we use our own resources. So as Gary mentioned, we're continuing in our series, The Lesser Known Parables. Jesus, when teaching to the crowds, 
would often speak in stories, in parables. And these, these are simply stories uh, of earthly interactions that had a spiritual meaning behind them. And there are many different kinds of parables. There are similes and metaphors uh, which compare one thing to another. You are the salt of the earth. There are epigrams, which are short, memorable, pithy statements. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? There are story parables, uh, things with a narrative plot, something like the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which many of us have heard. And parables are often multi-layered in meaning. The meaning of a parable is not always offered at face value, and this is on purpose. The disciples actually ask Jesus, why do you talk to the people in parables? And he says, basically, so that those who are ready and willing to receive me will understand, but those who are not ready and willing to receive me will miss the meaning. So the parable we're looking at today, true to form, is a bit cryptic, but we're going to look at it together and see what we can make of it. So this is in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. It's in your bulletins if you'd like to read along. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it for 450. Then he said to the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it out for 800. Then verse eight, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is God's word. What a weird story. So there was a lady who came up to me after service at Lake Mary and she was like, I didn't know that was in the Bible. What a weird story. So first, let me just, explain a few elements of the story before we get to some context. So the dishonest manager, also called the shrewd manager or uh, the unjust steward, is basically an employee of this very rich owner. And a steward would keep the books. He could make financial decisions on behalf of the owner. He could lend money on his behalf. So he had great freedom and great power. And the owner probably wasn't even consulted for like day-to-day -day business decisions, but he would have made a review of the books maybe monthly or quarterly. But this manager, we find, has been wasting the owner's money. And the owner finds out, he fires him, but he says, show me the books before you leave. I want to see what you've been up to. So basically, he calls for an, an audit. And we don't know exactly what, what the manager was doing to waste the owner's money. He could have been maybe siphoning off, off the top, kind of stealing a little for himself, storing it away for a rainy day. But that's kind of a self-perpetuating cycle. You steal a little bit, then you feel guilty and you're afraid to lose your job. So you have to steal a little bit more in order to make sure that you have a, you know, a, a, a net to catch you. Maybe he was simply wasteful extravagant, you know, sparing no expense for his own comforts. I like the, the phrase that John used when we talked about it at Teach Team. He said, he called it trying to live the dream on someone else's tab. And the manager, who has been found out, doesn't make any argument, so we can assume that he is actually guilty of this carelessness. And he says to himself, what am I going to do? I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? So then he says, I know. I'll go to each of my master's debtors and I'll reduce their bill so that when he throws me out, they'll take me in. And so while he's still in charge of the money, the manager carries out this plan to make himself some friends because he knows that the day is coming very quickly when he will have to rely on the charity of others. But 
Then the owner, in this, in this unexpected twist in verse 8, the owner, when he finds out what he's done, instead of reprimanding the dishonest manager, he commends him for being shrewd. And that word that's translated shrewd, phronemos, actually means something akin to, to prudent or wise or thoughtful. And so when I read this, I, I was like, what, what on earth makes that prudent, wise, and thoughtful? Because if, if this manager is just essentially stealing from the owner, stealing his stuff in order to get himself out of a jam, that doesn't seem like it's prudent, wise, and thoughtful. That just seems kind of sneaky, you know? Yes and no. There's a little cultural context that five of you will find interesting, but stick with me. This completely opened up the meaning of the parable for me. So according to Jewish law, specifically in, in uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, usury was forbidden. Usury was the, the practice of charging interest on a loan, and it was forbidden at least for fellow Jews. You could not charge a fellow Jew interest if you made a loan to him, not on money, produce, land, etc. But a manager, like the one in our story, was making the business decisions on behalf of the owner ostensibly without the owner's knowledge. So the manager could tack on interest, he could add his own fees, he could turn a bigger profit all without the manager, all without the owner ever knowing. And so uh, since the owner wasn't the one making the business decisions, he couldn't be accused of breaking Jewish law. Now, it's very unlikely that the owner didn't actually know what was happening. And even if he didn't, I don't know that God would accept that loophole as an actual excuse. So when the manager hears he's losing his job, he goes to each of the debtors and he says, what do you owe, 900 gallons? Make it 450. What do you owe, 1,000 bushels? Make it 800. And if you're curious about the, the difference in what he knocks off, it's, it's, it's just a difference in interest rates. So something like olive oil is easier to dilute or to spoil um, than something like wheat. So there was probably, we, we only get these two examples, but there was probably a long list, we can assume, of these debtors who he made these little backdoor transactions with. And the original bills which would have been written and signed by the debtors themselves were in possession of the manager. So when the manager destroys the originals and replaces them with the reduced amounts, there is no proof of what he's done. The only proof is in the owner's head based on his last review of the accounts. Now, this is, this is, this is why it's so brilliant. The owner will not expose what the manager has done. Why? Because the debtors are his only witnesses. And he's not going to call them to testify because what will they say? Yes, yes, the manager did reduce our debts. He reduced our debts by the amount of the interest charges that were tacked on. Interest charges, which were expressly forbidden by the law. See, the owner can't go after the manager without exposing himself to be a lawbreaker, without exposing himself to be a crook. So what does the owner do? He saves face. He says, good job, manager. In other words, I'm so glad that that crooked manager made things right by, by knocking off those illegal interest charges, which I knew nothing about in the whole of our business dealings. And then, and then so what, what happens? The, the, the owner looks like this God-fearing, law-abiding man. The, the, the manager looks like a repentant man, and he makes many, many friends in this transaction. So in that light, it does, in fact, seem prudent, wise, and thoughtful. But I think a fair question, then, that we can bring to the text is, what portion of this man's behavior is Jesus calling us to emulate in verse nine. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's he telling, is he telling us to be honest? I don't think so. My, my daughter is four and she hates going to bed. She absolutely hates it. And, and before you judge me, we have a bedtime routine. I've read toddler wise, it's all there. So we, we do all the things. We bath, brush teeth, lay down, read stories, say prayers. And then we have this sweet little thing that we do that we learned from our former pastor. I take her little face in my hands and I say, Ember, 
if God lined up all the little girls in the whole wide world and said that I could have any one of those little girls I wanted, I would pick you. And I poke her right there in the nose. So, so every night, same thing, her needs, physical and emotional, are met. And yet she will find all manner of reason to come downstairs and talk to us uh, again. Mommy, I need to go potty. Okay, go ahead, baby. Mommy, I need some water. Here it is. Okay, go back to bed, baby. Mommy, the bunnies are attacking me again. I don't have anything for that. Go back to bed. She hates going to bed, but she also hates, we've discovered she hates having her door closed. So this is now our new leverage. Babe, if you come out of your room, mommy's gonna have to close the door. And, 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 and she tested us the first time we, we made the threat, she tested us. And so I followed through and I closed the door and you know she screamed and cried and it felt like my, my heart was being ripped out and trampled on by the feet of a thousand trolls. But I, I stood my ground because I knew this was gonna be important. So I kept the door closed and then I opened it back up and, and she was, <laughs> and I'm like, babe, okay, now if you, wanna keep, if, you, if you want me to keep the door open, what are you gonna have to do? I'm gonna have to stay in bed. And it worked until very recently because my baby girl is no quitter. No, she's not. She's like a manipulation ninja. She, she works us. She, she just continues to try new strategies until she pinpoints our weaknesses. When she was 18 months old, I actually caught her practicing crying in my bedroom mirror. She, yeah, she walked up to the mirror, happy as a clam. <laughs> Looks at it. <laughs> Looks at it again. You know, just trying it on. Maybe that'll come in useful later. So anyway, so I'm putting her down the other night. And she's laying there in bed, plotting. And I'm sitting downstairs on the couch and, and, and all of a sudden she bursts out of her room and bounds down the steps and runs right up to me like that's not illegal. And just as I'm about to say, Ember, you know, babe, I'm gonna have to close your door now. Before I can get the words out of my mouth, she takes my, she grabs my face and she, face and she goes, mommy, if God lined up all the little mommies in the whole wide world and said that I could have any one of those little mommies I wanted, I would pick you. And so she's winning. Every day she's winning with that. <laughs> but the trouble is, I don't feel like I'm losing either, right? That's the problem. How do you discipline that? You tell me, because I can't. And, and I, know she came down, I know she came down just to test me, and it had absolutely nothing to do with actual human affection. But you know what? She's winning, because that's really good strategy. Questionable motive, brilliant execution. I think it's really important to note uh, a thing about this text that I think is really important. It, it does not say that the owner commended the shrewd manager for acting dishonestly. It says that the owner commended the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. What's being praised is, 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 is the shrewdness. He's not being praised for dishonesty. He's being praised for good strategy. And there's a big difference. It's the strategy, not the motive that's being praised. Jesus is pointing out that in this story, an, an, an unrighteous son of this world, this, this man, uh, can, can act shrewdly to benefit his temporary future. How much more should the sons of God act shrewdly to benefit eternal futures? He's saying that the, the strategy is good. Guys, you should spend your resources to make friends. You should be generous with your money to make friends. You should be generous with your time to build relationships. You should be generous with your talents. He's saying that there are folks in the world who are using this good strategy and their, their goal is nothing more than, than worldly wealth that they can't even take with them. How much more shrewdly should we act? How much more thoughtfully and wisely? How much more strategically should we use our resources to win friends for heaven? to add to an eternal inheritance, not a, not a temporary one. Our motive is to gain something not for ourselves, although that often is what it yields as well, but something for God's kingdom itself. 
and the people he has given us to love, and that yield is eternal. So we should use our resources. We should use our temporary, finite resources to build his infinite and eternal kingdom. Because you know what, guys? The reality is it's, it's all his stuff anyway. And if you're a high achiever, a hard worker, you might understandably ask, what do you mean it's all his stuff? You know, I, I worked hard for that money. I, I'm sure you did. That is not at all what I'm suggesting. I'm sure you worked hard for that money. All I'm suggesting is that I imagine most of us have some resources at our disposal when we go to work hard for that money. Number one, we're alive. Super hard to make money when you're dead. Number two, we were born into a place and into circumstances that afforded us certain opportunities. I mean, we were not born into the lowest caste in, in, in a slum in India, for example. We had nothing to do with that. We have nothing to do with where we were born. You've had an education. You've had people who supported you in your endeavors. You've had relationships and experiences that taught you a solid work ethic. You have the use of your arms and legs. You have a brain that's been enhanced by proper nutrition. It's, it's, it's not just grit and savvy that make us successful. We are all working with borrowed resources. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Otherwise, when you eat and you're satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability, the ability to produce wealth. It's not our stuff. It's not our land, it's not our gold, our brain, our talents, our abilities. All of that is on loan from the Lord. We don't own these things. We can only steward them wisely or poorly to build his kingdom or to build our own. It's, it's not our stuff. It's not our stuff, and yet he only expressly asks us for a tithe, a tenth of it back. If I were God and some whippersnapper like me came up to me and said, I can't believe you're making me give you 10% of the stuff I own. I'd say, kid, I can't believe I'm letting you keep 90% of the stuff I own. With that attitude, I ought to slap your face with a catfish. Why a catfish? Because I own those two, I do what I want. I'd make a really terrible God. <laughs> Guys, I'm not picking on you for having money. It's, it's not bad to have money. It, money is a good thing, but we have to recognize that we are the managers of it not the owners. Money's not bad. Money is a very important tool. In fact, the, the, the often misquoted 1 Timothy 6.10 says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, not, not money itself. And, and you could substitute a lot of different words in there, power, influence, sex. None of, the, none of those are bad things, but the love of them can be. It's a tool. Money is amoral. And like any other tool, it can be wielded to build or to destroy. Everything we have not just our money, everything we have is something that we steward on God's behalf, something that we can invest wisely, shrewdly to win friends for heaven. God doesn't want your money. He wants you to be generous because he knows that when we're generous to the people we love, to the people we don't love, to the people we don't even know yet, that, that, that the world takes note of that. And maybe it makes somebody curious about the God we live this way for. It's, it, it's not our money he wants. It's to cultivate generosity in our hearts because that has a, a far greater ROI than cash. Where, where are we withholding generosity from God? Maybe it's not money. We, we can certainly withhold generosity in ways other than just financially. In fact, you can be extravagant with your giving, 
but not actually be a generous person. And that's not what God's after. I mean, you, if you give your money in order to wield control or influence over people, that's, that's not actually generosity. I'll give you an example. My, my husband raises support for his uh, role with GAIN Global Aid Network with Crew. And, um, and if you've never heard of support raising, it just means that on a monthly basis, individuals contribute money, and that's how his salary gets paid. Every, most of the people at Crew are, are what's called supported staff, which means they raise money so that they get to do their jobs. And the whole culture of support raising was very foreign to me when Rob and I started dating a little over nine years ago. I didn't love it. Um, money was tight when I was growing up. And so uh, the idea of, of relying on what felt like the charity of others for a paycheck was just terrifying to me. That's not something that I wanted to get involved with. That's not something that I actually wanted to trust God with. I got my first job when I was 11 years old. I was a quarter girl in an arcade, so I had a pouch. People gave me dollar bills, and I gave them quarters out of my pouch like a marsupial. And I've had a job every year since then. And so, so the idea of just of relying on someone else was just frightening to me. It took me a while for that reason to understand that support raising isn't really about asking people to give you money. It's about inviting people into the vision of a ministry. If it, it, th This ministry is possible because these certain people give. And if they didn't give, this work just wouldn't get done. So it took me a minute, but now I'm on board. And, um, and I've recognized over the course of our marriage, it's actually a really incredible exercise in trusting God. And, and my husband trust God so much more quickly and readily and easily than I do. And I really believe it's because he spent, you know, half of his adult life practicing as, as supported staff. So anyway, years ago, there was this lady who was on my husband's support team before we got married. And, and, and anytime she saw Rob doing something leisurely on Facebook, say going to a movie or eating at Chick-fil-A, uh, she would write him on Facebook and be like, why are you squandering my money? Now it was like 10 bucks a month, but she paid very close attention to where every dime of it went. And she also had a lot of advice for him when he wasn't at Chick-fil-A. Uh, she would say things like, why do you, why do you even come back? Why, do you, why don't you just stay in the Middle East? I mean, you can Skype your family. It'll be fine. So eventually, my husband asked this woman to, to leave his support team. And if you're in the culture of support raising, you're like, what? You never ask, you never fire someone from your, that's the one thing you never do. You never fire someone from your support. You give up posting pictures on Facebook before you fire someone from your support team. Nobody does that. In fact, if you're raising support right now, you might ask me later for her contact info. It's not worth it, okay? I wasn't crazy about it either. I told him to just switch over to Instagram because she didn't have an account there, but he has more integrity than I do. So it is possible, I think, to be generous with your money, but, but not actually generous at heart. If, if you're giving generously, you're, you're giving without strings, at least not the kind of strings that you, you pull. In the parable, there are strings attached. The, the manager gives so that he can receive. But remember, the motive for us is different. We give because we have received. We give as much to benefit those who receive our generosity as we do to benefit ourselves, who they may one day welcome into eternal dwellings as a result. Not so we get a seat of honor at the church, not so we have you know, some special influence on the way things get done. That's not why we get. We don't tithe so that we get to dictate to God how to run the affairs of our lives. If you give away your money, but use it to control people, to, to wield power over them, that's, that's not really generosity. That's actually, that's a transaction. I give you this and you give me that. I give you money and you give me obedience. That's not generosity. And also as an aside, and, and I'm not just saying this because my husband supported staff, I'm saying it because at Summit, I've gotten the opportunity to work with some of the just absolute hardest working men and women that I have ever met in all of my years of having jobs since the age of 11, and, and they'll never say it themselves, so I'll say it for them. Please be generous to your ministers. 
You, you, you should want them to go out and have a fancy date with their wives because there, there is nothing that the enemy wants more than to see their marriages crumble. There's nothing that the enemy wants more than for them to burn out and flee the church and, and, and never look back. It, people are crazy when they sign up for this job. I'm telling you, like anyone who signs up for this job knows that they have just put a target on their back. And what a victory it would be for the enemy to get a foothold in their exhaustion and, and, and turn it into a moral failure and watch them fall and, and take half the church with them. Please, please be generous to your ministers. And I, I'm not saying to give them money that, you know, the church pays their salary, but be generous with your prayers. Be generous by allowing them to actually be off the grid when, the, when it's their day off or when they take a vacation with their family. Be generous with, with your encouragement. I promise you, it, it, it matters so much more than you can possibly know. You know how you can be generous to Gary? That guy loves warm hugs. Just long, intimate, lingering hugs. Gary wakes up in the morning and says, who can I wrap my arms around today? So just give him a hug. That's not true. You should, you should encourage him with your words. Where are we withholding generosity? Maybe it's not money. You guys are killing it with the budget here at Waterford. So maybe it's not money. Maybe it's relational generosity we're withholding. Maybe it's relational. Maybe you'll give money, but you won't give time. And you work those impossible hours to pay for the nanny and the cleaning lady and all the pristine school supplies in August, and you even manage to tithe to the church. Well, that, that's great, but not if giving that money is a way for you to avoid giving your time and your attention and your love to the people who need you most. Time is a precious commodity. Be generous with it. Because when it comes to time, we are all relying on the charity of God. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's forgiveness you're withholding. Maybe you are not generous with other people's faults. And you've been so angry with him for so long that when you think about reconciling, it's no longer that you don't know where to begin. It's that you're not even sure that you want to begin. Forgiveness is a, is a precious commodity. Be generous with it. Because when it comes to forgiveness, we are certainly all relying on the charity of Jesus. Where are you withholding generosity? Maybe, maybe you don't have two nickels to rub together. You literally cannot withhold generosity with money because you don't have any money to speak of. Maybe you've been looking for work for a while. God doesn't want you to give him 10% of nothing. I, I promise you, God has made you rich in something. You have time. Be generous with your time. You have words. You can be generous with encouragement. You can be generous with forgiveness. You can be generous by believing the best in other people instead of immediately assuming uh, you know, that they're out to get you. You can be generous by, by, by being vulnerable, by jumping first when other people are afraid to. We are all managing some precious resource for God. Are we managing it shrewdly? Are we leveraging it to make friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings? Now, it's possible that some of you are looking at your watch and breathing a sigh of relief because the sermon's almost over, and I have not actually asked you yet to give your money. I've asked you to be generous, and you're like, got it. I will be generous with my time, my forgiveness, and Gary will not leave my presence without a warm, lingering embrace. Well, sermon's not over yet. Sorry, guys. We, we can't overlook the fact. It would be unwise for us to overlook the fact that Jesus is actually talking about money in this parable because in God's economy, Generosity is, is certainly more than giving money, but it's also certainly not less than that either. And there is a reason. There's a reason that God asks this of us, and I, I don't think it's the reason that we usually assume. When Ember was first learning to ride her little radio flyer trike, um, I walked right beside her all the time so that I could help her watch for cars, help her, you, you know, 
regulate her speed, negotiate a turn if she needed it. But as she got more confident, she, got, she became like a little drunk with the power of speed. And so she would try to pedal faster than I could keep up with. Uh, and she would be strategic about it too. She would wait until I got distracted by something. Like I was fiddling with a dog's leash or talking to my husband. And then all of a sudden she would just take off, you know, Vin Diesel style, living her life one quarter mile at a time. And we come up to a cul-de-sac. So there's no cars that I can't see to be afraid of, but, but she has to turn at a harder angle than she's ever had to turn before. And it's a circle, so she has to keep turning. And I'm watching her, and she's too far ahead of me. And, 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 and I see the back wheel of the trike start to lift up off the ground. And I'm like, oh, no. And, and I can see the panic on her face. And I see that she no longer has control of the bike. The bike now has control of her. And so I, I can't get there fast enough. And she tips the bike and skids about a foot across the concrete. Now, fortunately, she was fine. She just scraped up her leg pretty bad. But she got up, she kind of shook herself off, stunned, and walked over to me and goes, Mommy, I hurt my foot elbow. Your foot elbow? Yeah, my foot elbow. You mean your ankle, baby? Yeah, my ankle. Now, before you judge my daughter for her terrible vocabulary, uh, let's consider the excellent deductive reasoning. Because what would you call an ankle if you didn't know its proper name? Obviously, it's a foot elbow. Foot elbow. Look, money, money's a good thing. It's a good thing. But there, but there is something intoxicating about it about having a lot of it, about, uh, about spending a lot of it. And, and if we're not careful, it can get away from us. And if, and if we're too late, we may find that I'm no longer steering it, but it is steering me. Verse 13 says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We can't. We can't serve them both because at some point money will ask something of us that is in direct opposition to what God asks of us and we will have to choose Will we, will we be faithful to our money or faithful to our character? Maybe you've already experienced this really terrible choice. God knows. God knows that the, sometimes there are things that we grasp so tight that we don't, we don't see that they've begun to grasp us back. But God, God doesn't need your stuff. If he wanted your stuff, he would take your stuff. He's God. The, the reason he asks us for his money is because there are, there are few things in this world with a greater capacity to displace God for the affections of our heart than money. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to give, we need us to give because we become shackled to the things that we own otherwise. He doesn't want you to give your life to something that doesn't give you life back. He doesn't want your money, he wants your heart. And if money is the thing standing between him and your heart, then yes, he wants you to give until it hurts because that pain is not a wound, it's a surgery. He doesn't need us to give. We need us to give. So the stuff that God has given us to manage never gets in the way of the people he's given us to love. Because we can't take it with us, guys. We can't take a dime of it with us. Nobody rents a storage space when they downsize to a one-bedroom coffin. So cultivate generosity with your money. It will enrich you more than all the wealth in the world. And, and, And maybe you know someone who's just like, stupid, disgustingly rich. They're just living life on Park Place with a monocle and a top hat, and you kind of resent them for it, and you're thinking, you know what, that's right. Atherton Carnegie III rolling up to the 9 a.m. in your Range Rover, you should throw a bone to the little guy. Why don't you loosen up those tight fists? Well, let's keep in mind. (laughs) Thanks, Janice. Um, Glad you like that joke. 
let's keep in mind that, 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 that this parable is actually directed to the disciples and they lived a pretty average lifestyle. Most of us are, are wealthier than they were and all of us are wealthier than 90% of the world is right now. And, and, and I know you probably don't feel rich, but bear with me for a second. We, we are so rich that we're actually wearing clothes and shoes to this service. They wouldn't have let you in otherwise, I think. And, and, and they're probably not the only clothes and shoes that we own. We're so rich that after the service, we're probably gonna go eat some food. And not only that, we're gonna get to choose what food it is that we wanna eat. Is it going to be Chalupas at Taco Bell or Planet Smoothie? Who knows, you don't know. Although admittedly, there is a right decision between those two choices. Most of us are pretty rich. And listen, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about it. I think, I think we reject the idea that we're rich because we don't know how to feel about that other than guilty, but God doesn't want you to feel guilty. No, that's, that, 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 that's not holy and it's not helpful. If you feel guilty about your wealth, all that means is that you still consider yourself an owner and not a steward. If you remember that it's, it's not really your stuff, you can't feel guilty about it. You can't feel guilty about stuff that's not yours. You, can't feel, you can only feel responsible. And that is a much more productive emotion than guilt. So I'm not saying you have to stop making money. You, you should make all the money. I'm just saying steward that money wisely. Invest it where you are guaranteed a return because there will never be a stock market crash in heaven. There will never be a depression. The real estate bubble there will never burst. Every investment you make into God's kingdom with your time, your talent, your money, Every investment you make will be eternal, 100% secure, paying dividends and interest beyond what we could possibly calculate because our earthly lives are too short to measure all the ripples. So let us be shrewd in our management. Let's surrender it to God, use it to build his infinite and eternal kingdom to win friends who will welcome us into heavenly dwellings. Because I don't know about you, but I am not particularly excited by the thought of streets paved with gold and sapphire footstools. I don't, I don't even have a category for that. I'm not moved by the idea of the ornaments of heaven, but I am moved by the thought of being welcomed into heavenly dwellings by the people that I love and that I miss and then I'll get to see their faces again. And because all of our sin will be burned away in the transition from death to life, not only will I love them, I'll actually like them now too. Because he won't be an addict anymore. And she won't be driven by fear. And all the fights and the hurt will be a distant memory and will be left with only the parts of us that were perfect before the world was not. Did you ever wonder what, what your spouse would be like if you kept all the personality but got rid of all the sin? Did you ever wonder what your parents would be like if you kept all of the love but got rid of all the control? There won't be a person in heaven that you won't want to embrace no matter how much you despise them on earth because those parts of us will be all burned up in the glory of God. C.S. Lewis writes, it is a serious thing indeed to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendship, all love, all play, all politics, 
There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. So let's be generous, guys. With our time, our talent, our vulnerability, our honesty, our forgiveness, our love, and yes, our money, because every interaction we have has the power to point someone toward or away from Jesus. Every interaction we have has the power to lead them to one or the other of those eternal ends. Because your charity will not only win friends for you, but friends for heaven itself. And each one of them will be someone who welcomes you into eternity. Charity demonstrates the shrewdest possible investment in the economy of God. Because in God's economy, people, listen, people are the only treasure that we have the opportunity to bring with us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your provision. Thank you for the way that you provide for us every day, not just uh, with our wealth and our resources, but, but the very breath in our lungs is your condescending grace in our lives. Help us to cultivate a heart of gratitude, Lord. Help us to remember you. Help us not to fear being dependent on your grace as though that were something bad. Help us not to hoard what we have so that we don't have to rely on you and seek you each day. Help us to never forget that we are managers of what is and eternally will be yours so that we never set ourselves up as rivals to you and try to accumulate for ourselves so much that we rival your glory. Lord, I pray that none of the shiny things that this world has to offer would ever eclipse your glory in our eyes. So Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that, that we would be able to daily practice the step of surrendering all that we have to you so that we might make the most of those things, so that we might invest them in places that will be eternal, so that the things we have never end up having us, so we never have to choose between our stuff and our obedience, and, and, and that if that if that day ever comes where we are faced with that decision, that the, the decision won't be painful, that it will be easy because we've been practicing it faithfully each day. So Lord, thank you for your generosity, not only in your provision for us, but in the greatest provision of all, your very life, so that we can receive with you an eternal inheritance. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope, amen.